Well, good morning and happy Easter. It's a big deal. It's a big day and happy Easter to those of you watching in our traditions venue, watching online this morning. I am so thankful to get to celebrate this day with you and with all of the other believers that call Sound Life their home that'll be in and out of this campus this morning. Just excited to celebrate with you and to think about the fact that literally billions plus millions of people around the world are celebrating in this 24-hour period the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that for a moment because I know for me sometimes, and and sometimes it's even worse when you're working at a church, you can kind of go through the rhythms of, of things like Christmas or Easter and you forget the meaning behind it. And when we talk about Easter, we're talking about the fact that a couple thousand years ago, an innocent man was killed. And three days after he was confirmed dead, he came back to life again. Now that's a big deal, right? That's, I haven't seen that happen anywhere else. I haven't experienced anybody else coming back to life after being dead for three days. If you have, please come let me know. But that's pretty rare. I don't know, though, if it's rare enough, if that story in and of itself is rare enough for billions of people for thousands of years afterwards to set apart hours and days to celebrate. But it is a big deal. It is that big of a deal. And why is that? Because that innocent man was not just a man. That man was God. And he was perfect. He was good in all of the ways that we know in our souls that we are meant to be good, that humanity around us is meant to be good, and yet we all know that we fall short of that, and yet Jesus never fell short. Not once, not one moment, not one temptation. He was perfectly good. And because he was God and because he was perfectly good, he was able to take our punishment and conquer our conqueror. Now, I know on Easter, we're not supposed to talk about the punishment side of things. We're supposed to leave that back on Good Friday, all that sort of thing. But again, if we're going to really grasp the meaning and the joy and the significance of Easter, we have to recognize what Easter celebrates, and that celebrates a punishment being taken for us and a conqueror being conquered for us. And Jesus did that, didn't he? You know, the, the whole punishment thing sometimes is a little confusing to us because we don't like, we don't like the idea at all. But the, the reality was that God created you and me and every other human being to live in close relationship with him. And I'm talking like every day you're in some sort of connection with God. You're aware that he's with you in the room. You hear his voice. You follow his direction. And you partner with him, most importantly of all, in doing the good things in this world that God desires to do with you. That's what God created you for. It's what he created me for. It's what he created every human being for. And there was this law put in place that anybody who rejected that relationship, any of us who decide we don't want to use all that God has put inside of us for good and nothing else, the consequence of rejecting that opportunity is death. Largely because separating ourselves from God, the giver of life, gives us no other option than death. And God has an enemy, the devil, who has spent history luring one after another to give in to the temptation of self 
over God, that we would choose selfishness over goodness and we would choose self over God himself. And one after another, we have given into that. We have been separated from God. We are destined for nothing more than death because we are separated from the giver of life. Except that Jesus came. Except that Jesus came and resisted that very same devil at every turn. Jesus came and he decided to make every choice correctly, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And then at the end of living that perfect life, he gave that life so that anybody who would believe in him, anybody who would come back to him, anybody who would return to relationship with God, their sin would no longer be a barrier. Our evil choices, our selfish choices would no longer be a barrier between us and God, but we could have relationship with the giver of life once again. And the part we celebrate today, the best part of it all, is that to prove that it worked, Jesus came back from the dead. Jesus died for us, but he didn't stay dead. He then rose for us so that we can know that because of what he did, we also can rise. We also, when this body wears out, can look forward to a new body and a new creation and a new eternity with God forever in relationship with him doing the good things he created us to do. That's a pretty good deal. And that's what we celebrate at Easter. And if you, if you sense the value of that and the significance of that, I don't know about you, but I was standing here listening to these worship songs and I've heard all those songs a lot of times before. They're nothing new to me. But I'm standing there and in this moment on this day, recognizing the price that was paid and the victory that was won, it has incredible meaning for me. And I hope that it does for you as well. But I also understand if it doesn't, it hasn't always for me. There have been times where I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, I know the story. And yes, praise the Lord. I get to go to heaven someday. And yes, thank you. I don't have to feel guilty and ashamed all the time anymore. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. When do we get on to the Easter eggs and the ham? Or when do we get on to the scones? I am pretty excited about scones, I'll admit. Kind of pumped about that. Maybe even the petting zoo. Did they bring the tortoises? I heard they had tortoises. I don't know if they can survive in rain, though. Anyways, I am excited about those things, but that's not the main thing that I get excited about, and I have not always gotten excited about Easter. Why? Because sometimes when we hear the story over and over again, or we know, yeah, that's, that's what we do as church people, or that's what those church people that made me come to church today do, it's kind of like we know the story, but it doesn't hold the meaning for us. Sometimes overexposure to really good things numbs us to their value, doesn't it? I, I uh, unfortunately saw this a lot in myself in my teenage and college age years. I have a little bit of a confession for you this morning, which I can confess because Jesus cleansed me from all of my sins and all of my shame. But uh, in high school, my dad had to help me with cars a lot. And this isn't like standard, like a dad, just, hey, son, let's work on a car together. Let's have fun doing this. This isn't like, hey, son, I bought you a nice new car. Some of those like kind of things you see in movies. No, 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 no. My confession is that from the time that I got my driver's license at age 16 until I got married at age 23, seven years, I was in allegedly eight car accidents where I was the driver. Yeah, 
not proud of it. And uh, you can imagine there were some consequences for that, a variety of consequences, some of them physical, many of them financial, um, some of them social, all those sorts of things. And so in that amount of time, I went through five cars. Many of them were in multiple car accidents. Luckily, the most expensive of all of them was $1,500, but still that starts to stack up. You're like, man, I could have had a really nice car if I would have added all those together. All that to say, though, who would I call when I was on the side of the road late at night? I wasn't necessarily excited to call him. I was forced to call him. I'd call my dad. In the middle of the night, my dad would come get me, and he'd help me get the car towed or whatever other. I mean, I have everything that could bad, bad could happen in a car accident. I've pretty much experienced that, although I did not die, so I'm thankful for that. But all that to say, I would call my dad, and he would help me start getting this sorted out. The challenge, though, was that I didn't make a ton of money, and my dad didn't have a ton of money on the side. And so we needed to solve this problem so that I could get to work and kind of, you know, in my own mind, I have a very important teenage social life I need to keep going, all those sorts of things. And so my dad would help me solve the problem of a wrecked car over and over and over again. I remember multiple times that my dad would drive me down to the U-Pull junkyard because we couldn't afford to get my car fixed again. And we would go find the parts and find the things. And my dad would help me take all the parts off the junkyard car and take them back home and then take my junkie car apart and put all those parts back on. And can I tell you something? I do not like working on cars. I never liked working on cars. I've always hated working. I've, I've wished that I liked working on cars. Other guys that like working on cars, I'm like, I want to be like you when I grow up. But I'm not. And I remember over and over again being frustrated in that process of having to, to figure this out and having to go at times for days or even weeks without a car to drive and having to, to borrow my parents' cars or, or all these other circumstances. I was frustrated, but do you know the one person I wasn't frustrated at? Myself. I was frustrated at all the other things that made my life inconvenient, but I was not frustrated at the one who was the perpetrator of my inconvenience. And all the while, my dad would patiently get up in the middle of the night to come rescue his son. My dad would pay for a tow truck to get my junkie car back to our driveway. My dad would give his time and the bit of money that he did have to help me get the parts and put the car back together so that I could work my job, so that I could have my social life, so that I could get to school and back, all those kinds of things. And I look back now and I'm like, why did he put up with that? Why was he so patient with me? I think it kind of came into perspective there towards the end of the story uh, when I had just gotten married and I was just out of college and I, I got my first kind of professional job out of college. I got my first full-time pastor job and I had to move down to Portland, Oregon for that with my brand new wife. We we're going to start a whole new chapter. We we're going to be real adults for the first time. It was kind of a big deal. And my dad called me and said, hey, you got to come over. You got to come over to the house. I need to talk to you before you leave for Portland. So I drove. At that point, I had a, uh, what was once an 89 Honda Civic that had been in two very significant fender benders. I don't know if you call it a fender bender when like the whole front half of the car is bent, but essentially same, same aerodynamics. And, and so this, this car 
had been patched back together multiple times by me and my dad. In fact, the the final time the bumper was zip-tied through the headlight because there were no bolts left to hook things on, right? So you guys, you guys have seen these cars. I know you've judged people like me, okay? <clears throat> I just feel compassion when I see those. I'm like, I, I, know, I know your journey, brother. I know what you're dealing with. And so I pulled up to, to my dad's house, and that was the car we were going to pack with, with almost everything. In fact, before I got married, everything I owned fit in that Honda Civic. You know, once you get married, then you need a U-Haul. But... Um, all that to say, I, I drove up in the Honda Civic, and my dad walked out in the driveway, and he handed me a pair of keys, a set of keys. And I, I said, Dad, what's this? And he, he said, these are the keys to my pickup truck. And my dad, just a few months before, had bought himself a Ford Ranger pickup truck that was basically brand new, and he was really excited about it. I knew he'd been waiting and saving up for this pickup truck. He'd been excited to get it. And um, he handed me the keys and I said, well, dad, I don't know when I'm going to be able to bring this back. We're going to be down in Portland. He said, well, you don't have to bring it back. I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, I'm giving you my car and I'm going to take your car and I'll sort your car out, but I'm, I'm giving you my car. And I said, dad, I can't take your car. He's like, no, what you can't do is go to your new job with your new wife in that car. He's like, I care too much about how people are going to think of you when you drive on that new campus, and I care too much about your wife not being on the side of the road when this thing breaks down to let you go with the car you have. You're going to take this car, and I want to give it to you. I'm proud of you. I'm excited for you guys in this new chapter. And my dad did something that he financially could not afford to do. In fact, over the next two years, he did not go get rid of my my junkie Honda Civic, he continued to, to string that thing along, to work on it, to fix it up, and drove that car for the next two years as the superintendent of a Christian school district. In fact, he got calls several times that some high school kid had parked their junkie car in the teacher parking lot. And it was his car. And he drove it until literally it couldn't drive anymore because the car that he had paid for was in Portland with me. And I realized, I realized that whole time, that whole time where I had been so focused on myself and so frustrated with the limitations on me and, and, and angry at the consequences that I had brought on myself, I had missed something significant. I had missed how much my dad was sacrificing for me all along. How much he, he thought that I was worth his sacrifice. How much he was giving up so that my life could be better. He valued my flourishing. He wanted me to be successful in a job. He wanted me to be successful at school. He wanted me to have a social life and to thrive in every possible way. And he sacrificed what he didn't have much of, time and money and energy, so that I could have that. And you know, that's something that we all understand. Now, I don't know if you had a dad who did that for you or somebody else in your life that invested in you, but I, I do know that we understand this principle that we sacrifice for the ones that we love. We sacrifice for the ones we love, don't we? And, and the level of sacrifice in your life often is the measure of love that you have for the people around you. Every parent in the room, you're hearing that story about my dad and you're like, I, I feel his pain right? In one way or another, because we sacrifice for the ones we love. And that 
brings meaning to a season of my life when my relationship with my dad was admittedly very distant and rocky and not great. I look back on that season and there's no question in my mind, did my dad love me the whole time? Did he have my best interest in in for me the whole time? Yes. I couldn't see it because I was focused on the wrong thing, but I see it now. Sometimes I have to do the same thing with Easter. I have to do the same thing with the good news. I have to do the same thing with Jesus because I get a little too focused on myself and I forget the meaning. I forget the love. I forget the reality of what Jesus has done for me. And I want to read a passage from the crucifixion this morning. I know that it's Resurrection Sunday, but again, I think sometimes recognizing the sacrifice makes the gift that much more valuable. In Luke chapter 23, I want to read a little piece of the crucifixion story. And and rather than you just hearing what happened, I want you to hear how it happened. I want you to notice how Jesus responded to the different people in this part of the story. I want you to think about the social dynamics and the emotional dynamics of this story and try to enter the story yourself. We're going to pick up in verse 32 where Jesus has just been sent out to Calvary, to the hill called the Skull, where he's going to be crucified. And in verse 32, it says this, two others Both criminals were led out to be executed with him. And when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. And they called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him even scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. By this time, it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. And then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. And when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. When you recognize the value of what Jesus did for us, that story is in some ways even hard to read. When you're reading that story and it's about someone you love, it's hard to read. 
did you notice through it all how Jesus responded? How, how different people responded to him? Did you notice how he handled the people that were abusing him? The people that were literally nailing his body to a wooden cross, did you notice how he handled them? Or, or those that stood by and watched and took pleasure in his crucifixion, that stood there and mocked him with his own words, the words that he had preached to them in love, they threw back at him with scorn. Did you notice how Jesus responded to them? In verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's compassion, grace, when he could have taken vengeance. What does that show us? That even though Jesus was shamefully abused, Jesus' abusers were worth it to him. They were worth it to him to go to the cross for them, not just for us, for them. Did you notice how he responded to the criminal on the cross next to him? A criminal that by his own word says, I deserve death. I don't deserve anything more than this. I'm getting exactly what I should get. I shouldn't expect anything else. And all he asks is, Jesus, when you are where you deserve to be, will you just have a passing thought about me? Will you just remember me? Will you, will you let there be one thought in eternity of my life? And what does Jesus say? In verse 43, Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because even though Jesus was wrongfully sentenced to death and this criminal was rightfully sentenced to death, this one guilty criminal was worth it to Jesus. It was worth it to Jesus. Jesus is saying on the cross, you're the reason I'm here. So that you'll be more than than remembered in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. And then maybe most profound of all, did you notice the impact Jesus had on his executioner? On the Roman soldier that was in charge of the whole thing, he was the one that gave the order to beat Jesus within an inch of death. He's the one that permitted all of the mockery, all of the mistreatment. He's the one that allowed his own soldiers to gamble over Jesus's clothing before Jesus was even dead. He's the one that has watched it all go on. And over the course of this process, something about this crucifixion sets it apart from the dozens, if not hundreds of crucifixions of Jewish people that he had already overseen in his career. A hardened soldier. His specialty is executing Jews. And something about this one is different. Different enough that the man whose career has been in killing God's people suddenly turns and worships God and says, this man was the son of God. What does he say in verse 37? When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. Surely this man was innocent. So Jesus was brutally murdered under the supervision of this man. But his own killer was worth it to him. 
if all of these people are worth it to Jesus, though they were guilty of horrendous acts, you must know that you are worth it to him as well. You must know that there is nothing on earth that could set you apart from the sacrificial love of Jesus. Why? Because we sacrifice for the ones that we love. So there was no sacrifice too great for God because you are the ones that he loves. He loves you. Even when you, like me, are ignorant of his love or ignorant of the selfish decisions that have brought consequences on yourself, even when you don't recognize it, he loves you. And even when you feel it so deeply that you live in shame and guilt, he still loves you. He did all of this for you because you are worth it to him. But you know, Easter isn't just about that. Easter is about the response. When you recognize that you're loved that way, when you recognize, when you finally see that someone loves you that way, it demands a response from you. You cannot remain indifferent to that level of love. You cannot remain numb to that level of love. You can't continue in the same journey anymore. And do you know who the first one to respond was? God the Father, who honored Jesus by raising him from the dead and giving him all authority in heaven and on earth and said, that is my son whom I love and he has done good in this world, the most good that's ever been done by doing good for all people. And God honored him. God responded to his love. And the question for us on Easter is how do we also respond? to Jesus' love and to Jesus' power, that Jesus not only remained dead because of our sins, but while he was dead, in the midst of death, he conquered the devil and he conquered the law. He conquered the consequences of sin and death themselves. And we should be in awe of that, that he has power over all Things. So how do we respond to that? Because the meaning of Easter means something to us. It means that we have value. It means that we have worth in our lives. But Easter is not only about what we get, it's about what we give. It's not only about, oh, thankfully someone sees the value that I've already been placing on myself. It actually calls us to something that gives us greater value than we can ever place on ourselves. The value Jesus places on us calls us to something greater than we ever would attribute to ourselves. Jesus calls us to something that is worth our entire lives. It's worth it all. What he has done for you and who he is, is worth all that we are. And when we recognize that that person has loved us, we want to give it all. 
Reminded of one more story, right after the resurrection, Jesus began appearing at different times to groups of his disciples, and he, he appeared to, to the remaining 11 disciples minus one, minus Thomas. He appeared to the disciples, and in John chapter 20, verses four through tw- 24 through 29, we won't read it this morning, but there's this amazing little story where he appears to the other 10 disciples, and they come running to Thomas, and they're like, Thomas, you missed it. Jesus is alive. And maybe you've heard that this morning. Maybe you woke up to that this morning. Maybe you heard that when you're walking into church this morning. Jesus is alive. And I can tell you there have been times I've heard that and it has meant nothing to me. It's bounced off. And Thomas had that experience. He said, guys, it's been a rough week. We're all a little scared of what's going to happen next. I think you're getting a little emotional. Maybe you saw a ghost. Maybe you had a dream, but you did not see Jesus. He said, "I, I cannot believe you unless I see him with my eyes and touch the wounds on his body. Then I would believe. But I can't believe otherwise. Even Thomas was worth it to Jesus. And so a week later, All 11 of the disciples are together again, in hiding again, because they're afraid the same thing that happened to Jesus is gonna happen to them. And this time Jesus appears to them all again. But what does he do? He walks straight to Thomas. And he says, Thomas, do you wanna touch the wounds? Do you see me? He says, Thomas, don't live without faith anymore believe. And what does Thomas say? Thomas doesn't say, yes, Lord, I believe in you now. I will see you in heaven and continue on as he had before. No, Thomas is overwhelmed as he realizes that what Jesus did on the cross was not a needless death, it was for him. And as he realized that it was not just any man that died, but it was God himself who has now risen from the dead and conquered death. When he realized that, he knelt before Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. Because when you recognize what Jesus has done and who Jesus is, there is no other response than to give it all to him. To recognize that there is no other person that has a right to your life than Jesus, the true Lord and the one true God. We don't hear anything else about Thomas in that story, but what we do know about Thomas is that Thomas gave the rest of his life to serving and suffering for Jesus. Thomas went into some of the most difficult parts of the world at the, t- at the time. He became a missionary to the Middle East and to India. And there were some very difficult things that he went through in evangelizing, but he also planted churches and shared the good news of Jesus and won many people to the love of Jesus before he too was murdered for preaching the good news. Far from home, far from friends. Why? Because Thomas realized what Easter promises to all of us, that you are worth it to God, but there is only one person who is worth all of you, and that's Jesus. 
He is the one who is worth giving your all to. He is the one who is worth it. And we can give our lives to a lot of things. We do give our lives to a lot of things, but Jesus is worth it all. He's worth everything. He's worth every day waking up with him. He's worth every moment acknowledging him. He's worth allowing him to lead our relationships, to lead our careers, to forgive our sins, to direct our paths, to give us hope and faith for a future. Jesus is worth giving all of it to. Because just like at the beginning, you were created for him, at the end, you will be in eternity with him and for him. And he is worth it all. When we think about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we are meant to be reminded that we are worth it all to Jesus. And he is worth all that we have to offer back to him. I'd like to pray with you this morning. If you'd bow your heads with me. My hope for you this morning is that you have recaptured some of the meaning of Easter if you didn't have it already. My hope for you this morning is that you recognize the great value that Jesus puts on you and that you also recognize the great value that we are to put back on him. The beauty of the resurrection is that it offers us a fresh start. And I don't know where your life is at this morning. I I don't know. I know we go through a lot of ups and downs. And I don't know if you came in here knowing Jesus or not. But what I do know is that the cross and the resurrection are the promise of a fresh start. And before I pray over you this morning, I'd just like to ask, do you need a fresh start? Do you need a refocus? Do you need to turn your eyes off of yourself and put them back on Jesus? Do you need to be able to give all of yourself to God? Are you recognizing that he is worth it and your attention has been elsewhere? And if that's you this morning, I just want to pray with you. I've been there more times than I'd like to admit, and I want to pray for you for a fresh start with Jesus and allow him to lead your life like he led Thomas's, like he led the centurions. If that's you, would you just raise a hand up so I can pray specifically for you? Raise a hand up like, yeah, thank you. I see that hand. Thank you, others. Anybody else that wants a fresh start with the Lord? Father, just like you saw that criminal who asked to be remembered. And just like you saw the centurion and just like you saw Thomas in his doubt, you see each one of us, you see the hands that are raised saying, God, I need your help. I need a fresh start. I wanna give my all to you. Show me what that looks like. And Father, I just pray for a renewed sense of your presence in those that are asking for it. I pray those that are asking Jesus, see me, see my hand, that you would show them that you are with them, that you would wake them up day after day with a sense of your presence and your purpose for them, that you would lead them until this body breathes its last and you wake them up in eternity. 
And Father, I ask for all of us that we would walk not in a religious memory of what you had done for all of the world, but we would walk in a daily experience of what you have done for us that moves us to do all that we can for you, to give all of our life to you because you are the one who is worth it. So Father, on this resurrection day, we say thank you. Thank you for not only giving us new life, but giving us new purpose in you. Help us to walk in it, full of joy and peace. In your name, in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.